The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. After the headlines today, I interview council member Mitch O'Farrell from Los Angeles's 13th district. Here are some headlines from this morning and over the weekend. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court dismissed a lawsuit Saturday night from U.S. Representative Mike Kelly and other Republicans after they had tried to invalidate absentee voting and block the certification of votes in recent weeks. The court was unanimous in deciding against Kelly and others and refusing to block vote certification on Saturday. Five of the seven judges wrote that they believed the lawsuit had been filed far too late, a year after absentee voting procedures had been established in the state and weeks after millions of Pennsylvanians voted in good faith. Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman told CNN, no matter what the GOP pulls, it's not going to end differently. On Friday, a federal appeals court dealt the Trump campaign effort another blow, a Trump-appointed judge writing in a scathing opinion that the campaign's lawsuit lacked proof and that its allegations in Pennsylvania have no merit. More than 91,000 people, the most of the pandemic, are hospitalized with the coronavirus in the U.S. right now. Following a month of skyrocketing COVID-19 cases, the U.S. has reached its highest number yet of hospitalizations due to the virus. The U.S. surpassed 80,000 daily hospitalizations on November 19 and set new records steadily for 17 days until Friday, according to the COVID tracking project. Then on Saturday, the number reached 91,635. As of Saturday, More than 13.2 million Americans have been infected by the virus, and at least 266,047 people have died, according to data from Johns Hopkins University. In Japan, more people died from suicide last month than from COVID-19 in all of 2020, and women have been impacted most. In Japan, Government statistics show suicide claimed more lives in October than COVID-19 has over the entire year to date. The monthly number of Japanese suicides rose to 2,153 in October, according to Japan's National Police Agency. As of Friday, Japan's total COVID-19 toll was 2,087, according to the Health Ministry. It's been over two weeks since a disastrous ceasefire ended Azerbaijan and Turkey's genocidal war and ethnic cleansing of Armenians in Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh. But war crimes against Armenian prisoners of war continue, such as beheadings, mutilation, and torture by Azerbaijani forces. Let's take a listen to a German report about the aftermath of this genocidal war and ethnic cleansing of Artsakh Armenians. The war over Nagorno-Karabakh seems to be over, at least for now. 
But now amidst the political challenge for Armenia, celebrations in Azerbaijan and the world superficially reporting this as a peace deal, it is important not to forget about the war crimes and horrible atrocities committed during this war. For those of you who don't know me, I'm neither Armenian nor Azerbaijani, and this is all done based on facts, such as horrifying images and videos, as well as reports of independent and respected international organizations, reasonable anecdotal evidence and witness accounts. I really suggest you don't trust any of this blindly. By the way, exactly how you should not trust any of the two sides blindly, just because they are saying something. Look at the facts, be reasonable, be compassionate and use some common sense. And that's what I did and this is where it led me. Oh and by the way, for all of the following and even more, I have linked many many sources down below in the video description. And also since this video might be a little bit longer, down below in the description you can find timestamps to jump around to exactly the point that you're interested in. So let's get started. First off with a quick definition of war crimes. The four 1949 Geneva Conventions and its three additional protocols are the main treaties defining war crimes and they are ratified by 196 states, including all UN members. Honestly, it's way too long to cover it all in this video, but I will mention the relevant aspects and anyone who wants to research more can do so with the links down below. Convention number one. Convention one protects wounded and unarmed soldiers and medical personnel. It ensures humane treatment without discrimination based on race, religion, etc. It explicitly prohibits things like torture, assaults on personal dignity and execution. Convention number two, protects mainly naval forces and therefore doesn't really play a role in this one. Convention number three goes into more detail specifically for prisoners of war or POWs, which will unfortunately prove to be very relevant later on. Convention number four protects the civilian population with the same rights as mentioned in the first convention. It also specifically prohibits attacks on civilian hospitals, medical transports and further defines how occupiers are to treat an occupied population. Now let's look at the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict and point out acts that can be reasonably assumed to be true, if not flat out proven, and also defined as war crimes. And again, this is of course not going to be a complete list. I have gotten so incredibly much feedback and resources and video footage on what happened in Artsakh that I can really only make a selection that will give you an accurate understanding of what was actually happening. And once more, further resources in the video description. I have categorized the reported war crimes into a few categories. They're pretty much all covered by the Geneva Conventions and this is just to make it easier to follow along. First, here are the war crimes against the civilian population in this conflict. So like I said, convention number four protects the civilian population from intentional attacks right against them. Now, Azerbaijan basically from the very start of the war has consistently shelled many different regions of Artsakh, especially in the capital Stepanakert, which was a city of over 50,000 citizens, has now turned into what one reporter called a ghost town. The city was hit by shelling pretty much over the complete duration of the war from September 27th until the end of the war at November 10th. Making matters even worse, the Azerbaijani military started using cluster ammunition. This is widely reported by independent sources such as Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch who were on the ground and specifically documented at least four incidents and noted explicitly that there was no military site anywhere close indicating a clear and intentional attack on the civilian population of Artsakh. And we have to think about that. Some accounts speak on the sirens signaling the next strike something like every 30 minutes. There's a short piece from Vice on this that gives a real good idea of what that must have felt like and I really recommend you watch it, it's linked down below. Actually, okay. Usually we get a little siren, so we know we need to go into the bunker. But sometimes, siren doesn't work. So we get the bomb before the siren. But it's okay, we're, we're getting used to it. 
Next on is the use of incendiary weapons, specifically white phosphorus on forest areas in Arsakh. The reason this is listed as an attack on civilians is twofold. First off, there were civilians hiding in the forest at the time, resulting in a direct damage on those people. People were hospitalized with horrifying injuries and burnt body parts. And the second reason is that the local population heavily depends on their livestock for the livelihood. They need the forest to live. And an attack on the forest is an attack on the immediate sources of basic need for those Armenians. And according to Protocol 3 of the Convention on Prohibition of Use of Certain Conventional Weapons, its use is prohibited. Now talking objectively obviously also means talking about the attacks against Azerbaijan. And there are two specific attacks that I have to mention here. The first one is a heavy missile attack by the Armenian forces against the city of Bada in Azerbaijan, which was carried out over two separate strikes. And this one reported time, Artsakh forces allegedly used cluster ammunitions as well. The second one was on the city of Ganja, where the Artsakh defense forces allegedly hit four ballistic missile strikes against civilian areas. Those attacks as well inflicted heavy damage on the civilization and are to be condemned as well. Now I do have to say for the sake of giving an accurate image, while not at all minimizing the pain and suffering inflicted by those attacks on Azerbaijan, we are comparing a few single strikes with dozens of strikes per day for weeks. We compare destroying dozens of houses with destroying the majority of a complete city of 50,000 people. That's how I see it based on all the information out there. But again, obviously you make your judgment ultimately by yourself. War crimes on medical personnel and institutions. Now convention one also protects any sort of medical personnel and institutions from being attacked deliberately. This obviously includes hospitals. Now in this war, Azerbaijan has repeatedly and intentionally targeted hospitals and medical institutions. And the reason that I say intentionally is because there are just too many repeated and precise attacks that it would be pretty much unreasonable to say otherwise. First, there was an attack on a military hospital that completely destroyed the whole facility. Azerbaijan actually released footage of the bombing themselves, calling the target fuel and ammunition depots. Now, footage from the ground, from exactly that location shortly after the attack, shows clearly that it in fact was a hospital and therefore is considered a war crime. This is, by the way, another typical step that I have noticed by Azerbaijani news reporting is that often they completely deny facts, like mentioned in a previous video, but other times they just twist certain parts of the story to legitimize their actions. The reason they called it a fuel depot, by the way, is because there was in fact a gas station on the property and also a lot of traffic by military vehicles that were in fact used to transport injured people. All right, another targeted attack happened on the 28th of October, where the Azerbaijani forces launched targeted strikes against the maternity hospital in Stepanakert, resulting in heavy damages on the building. And there's several videos of that attack, also from inside the hospital, showing the chaos and damage being done as people flee into the basement to hide from the bombings. Attacking hospitals is without any room for argumentation, a horrible act and a war crime. In addition to the hospitals, there also were cluster ammunition attacks on the Red Cross office and there also was a targeted hit on the emergency situations department. Now one more thing to mention is an attack from November 1st where an Azerbaijani drone attacked a firefighter's car that was in the process of bringing drinking water from the city of Askaran to the civilians of surrounding settlements. According to Geneva Conventions Protocol 1, Article 54, Paragraph 2, it is prohibited to attack drinking water facilities as they are vital for a population survival. War crimes on prisoners of war. Now, the arguably most horrible acts of war crimes in this war are committed against Armenian prisoners of war. The Geneva Convention state clearly that it is prohibited to torture, humiliate, let alone execute prisoners of war. 
Now I'm sure that many of you watching this have been exposed to the sorts of imagery that you would hope never to see. Because it's so horrible, cruel and disturbing to a level that it legitimately makes me question how someone ever under any circumstance would ever be able to do something like this to another human. I will obviously not share any of the most graphic images here. And if you don't want to hear about those terrible things, I totally understand and I respect that because many of you know this already and have went through the pain of hearing about this and seeing all this. So if you wanted to skip this specific part of the reports about prisoners of war, you can forward to this specific timestamp. All right, so first off on the 15th of October, two unarmed prisoners of war were executed in the region of Hadrut. A video shows how two people, a younger man and an elderly, are being captured by Azeri forces. They then sit them down in a public area, hang an Armenian flag around them and execute them on camera by shooting them many, many times. This video has been independently verified by several sources beyond reasonable doubt. And yet Azerbaijan continues to claim that this is just a fake video and Armenian propaganda. Another video shows many corpses laying on the ground, which appear to be Armenian soldiers. Several factors indicate that they are not just soldiers killed in combat, but victims of war crimes. Some of them have unnecessary exposed body parts, have their pants pulled down, and some of them are obviously handcuffed, which raises the question, why are they handcuffed? You wouldn't handcuff a dead person, and executing several handcuffed prisoners of war is again another war crime. Now a third video that I was unfortunately exposed to showed Azeri soldiers very visibly cutting off ears of a dead Armenian soldier and inflicting horrifying wounds to his face by violently and repeatedly stabbing them into the face. Now the next thing, another image, in fact I think even several images, as well as many independent reports, proved that Azeri forces repeatedly beheaded Armenian soldiers and presented those heads as trophies and they were posing with them in images that later circulated in social media. Another video shows a captured group of Armenian soldiers in handcuffs laying on the floor while Azeri forces humiliate them and torture them by kicking them, by stabbing them with sharp metal objects into their bodies and pushing their boots on the heads of the soldiers. Now I want to clarify something for a second. Lots of pro-Azerbaijani commenters have complained about me not being objective enough. I should talk about Armenian crimes too, and I have mentioned the information I have about the Armenian side. But if we talk about war crimes in total, and especially this very sort of, you know, personal, more, I don't know if that's the right word, but intimate level of war crime inflicted directly from one person to another person, there's just really not much to compare objectively. In fact, you know what's the only information that I found on Armenians in regards to Azeri prisoners of war? Is that they in fact rescued them. They gave them medical help and put them into a hospital. Now, again, this is not pro-Armenian or contra-Azerbaijan. This is just cold facts and you can make up your mind based on it. Now, before we go into the war crimes against the cultural heritage, let's quickly touch on mercenaries because on a very simple moral basis, hiring mercenaries is obviously an act of total cowardice. On the legal basis, however, Article 47 of Protocol 1, additional to the Geneva Conventions, states that, quote, a mercenary shall not have the right to be a combatant or a prisoner of war. And there's also the so-called United Nations Mercenary Convention, prohibiting the recruitment, training, use and financing of mercenaries. Now, for those of you who don't know, and I didn't know that before, mercenaries are a big business with a worldwide market of around $100 billion. And that's the reason why this treaty that we just mentioned is only ratified by 35 states. But for this case, that actually doesn't matter because what matters is that Azerbaijan did in fact ratify this treaty and Azerbaijan also undoubtedly with an unquestionable amount of evidence 
did use reportedly at least 2,000 mercenaries in this war, paid for and shipped from Syria by Turkey, who was heavily involved in this war, as we already know. War Crimes Against Culture Let's talk about the war crimes committed towards culture. Now for context, the UN Security Council has adopted a resolution that states that deliberate destruction of cultural heritage may in fact amount to war crimes. In Artsakh, there are many hundreds of different relevant elements like churches, monasteries, cross stones, cemeteries and other monuments. And now with this peace deal, a lot of Artsakh's ancestral territory is now again under control of Azerbaijan. And now based on the actions of the Azeri forces during the war, and based on statements before the war and after the ceasefire agreement, there is evidence for cultural war crimes and a very high risk of many more of them in the near future. For one, Azerbaijani armed forces were shelling the Kazanchitsos cathedral twice on the 8th of October, inflicting strong damage to the centuries-old cathedral. After the ceasefire and with Azeri control of the city, the building was vandalized by Azerbaijani forces. And now that the ceasefire is in place, many Armenians fear further deliberate destruction of their cultural heritage. Especially following a decades-long systematic erasure of Azerbaijan's historic Armenian heritage by destroying tens of thousands of cross stones, so-called Khachkars. And the fear is justified. Just after capturing it, Azerbaijani soldiers are destroying and ridiculing crosses, churches and other monuments. So, how do we conclude all this? It's unimaginable to me what level of suffering and pain those war crimes have caused and continue to cause. This needs to stop. In fact, it should have stopped a long time ago. Other states need to step in. And we as people need to do all we can to make them aware. Armenian diaspora and the local Armenians are very loud around the world already and they need to keep it up and their non-Armenian friends as well. So let's share this all over the place with everyone, so nobody can look the other way. Whether it's this video or many of the other reports on war crimes that you can see all over the place, send it to your followers, send it to your friends, send it to your authorities, urge your governments, start petitions, and let's not be quiet. You can read some of my articles and reports on The Blunt Post, uh, which is thebluntpost.com. Or you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram. My handle on both of those is at Vic Jarami. So it's at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. And uh, I post uh, pretty much everything that I write online and on all my social media handles. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I'm going to do something that I never imagined I would ever do, and that's to call out Cher. But it's not about entertainment, music, anything like that. I have been a huge fan of Cher for as long as I can remember. I've actually written a, a tribute article about her, uh, and I've gone to her shows. I've met her twice. I've just been a huge fan, and anyone that knows me knows I'm probably one of Cher's like top 1,000 fans. And that says a lot because she has like an army of fans. And the reason I want to call her out is this, uh, about month and a half, two months ago, when the war in Artsakh broke out and Azerbaijan and Turkey mercilessly started slaughtering Armenians, a co-worker, a colleague of mine, actually, we started to produce a PSA with celebrities uh, called I Stand With Artsakh in Armenia. Very simple, one-minute thing that anyone could do on a phone, an iPhone. And so we, we both had a lot of contacts with uh, celebs and also publicists, so we 
contacted a lot of people, and we got a lot of them on board immediately. Kim Kardashian, Serge Tankian, Ed Begley Jr., uh, Congressman Adam Schiff came on board. I had contacted Cher's publicist, and about a week later, I received an email saying that Cher is not doing any appearances, video, Zoom, anything like that. And if I want to, I can submit some copy and artwork for Cher to consider for her social media. So I thought, okay, I'll take whatever I can get. So I prepared the copy and photos and such, and I sent it to her publicist. And I never saw them posted, uh, nor did I ever hear back from her publicist after following up multiple times. Of course, a few days after being told that Cher is not doing any videos on camera, events, etc., she was um, at the Billboard Music Awards giving an award to Garth Brooks, which I thought was sort of odd. Also, you know, Cher tweets daily a lot. For those that are following her know this. For five weeks when Turkey and Azerbaijan uh, launched a genocidal campaign and ethnic cleansing of Armenians uh, using mercenaries, ISIS mercenaries, Syrian, Libyan, Pakistani, and slaughtering people, she never tweeted a thing or on her other social media. And for those of you who don't know, I should have said that Cher is Armenian-American. So I was just, I could not understand it. So after having not heard back from her publicist, you know, I basically tweeted to her a couple of times, said, you know, come on, we are, you know, this is about saving lives. You can't just do one tweet. Finally, after Armenia was basically forced to sign an egregious ceasefire agreement that was brokered by Russia. She did a PSA, not our PSA, the one that my colleague and I produced, but a different one. But it was too late. It meant nothing at that point because uh, it was all over. Artsakh lost 75% of its land and thousands of Armenian soldiers uh, had died. And it meant nothing at that point. But this gets better, or worse, I should say. I found out a couple of days ago that Cher, who has been campaigning for this elephant uh, named Kavan, uh, and I've followed that story too, she goes to Pakistan to escort the elephant from Pakistan to uh, a retreat in Cambodia. And she spent a lot of money and energy and time and all of this. So what's wrong with that? Well... That act alone, there's nothing wrong with that. We're all, I think most of us are animal lovers. I personally would jump in a raging river to save a dog. But the point I'm trying to make is Pakistan was and is the country that supplied mercenaries to Azerbaijan and Turkey to kill Armenians. And they were given a $100 bonus for every beheading of an Armenian. But Cher chooses to go to Pakistan for an elephant something that is being handled by professionals. She could have just keep sending her money. And also, when you think about it, you know, she could have been in Armenia for a few days uh, visiting hundreds and hundreds of soldiers who've lost legs, arms, and boost their morale by just a simple trip. But she, she chose to go to Pakistan, and she... You know, I, I just, uh, I'm stunned of this. I think it's just so egregious. 
And of course, it follows her refusal to do the PSA or say anything about what was happening for so long until it was too late. So there you have it. You know, I always say that we've got to call out not just people that are we don't agree with and people that we sort of are not fans of. That's easy. I can criticize you know, Donald Trump forever. But we also have to call out people that we do like and people that we are fans of, because if we don't, then who else will? And I just think that this is just a little too much from Cher. It's very, very disappointing. Um, I really don't know what else to say until I process this. So there you have it. That is me being very blunt. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Council member Mitch O'Farrell represents the 13th district on the Los Angeles City Council. Now in his second term, Mitch has continued to lead on an array of issues. Mitch has successfully worked with state and county partners to bring billions of dollars in funding to address city's homelessness crisis. In 2017, he also spearheaded the city's efforts to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day, setting an example for other cities across the country. Most recently, Mitch secured the permanent installation of the All Black Lives Matter decorative design on Hollywood Boulevard at Highland Avenue, which serves as a tribute to the historic march back in June that elevated the voices of transgender and queer people of color. Mitch is the first openly gay person to be elected to the 13th District City Council seat. Councilmember Mitch O'Farrell, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic today. How are you this morning? Doing well. Good to be with you, Vic. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for uh, joining me for this. You are, I can only imagine how busy you are with this uh, incredible year we've had that continues to be very tumultuous, to say the least. You know, I, I can't, I just give it up to elected officials during this time because there's so much need, but there's so much of you to go around and there's so many things that can be addressed and fixed and some of it is just completely out of our control so uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> i totally appreciate what you do for Thank la you. yeah absolutely for la and your you know all of la and as well as your own district you know before i ask you any specific questions uh, where we are today since things change daily i just want to know your general assessment of where we are as a country and where we are as a city of los angeles we are in unprecedented times. A, a colleague of mine put it in perspective. I got a Thanksgiving message from him, and he really put it in perspective when he said, "Happy holidays to you and George." Um, you know, this has been uh, the most challenging year that any city council has probably faced uh, in anyone's memory, and I had never even thought of the situation in those terms. I just knew that when COVID hit us hard in March, by late March, I knew that we needed to uh, focus all of our energies on keeping people housed and fed because we kind of knew where it was going when the shutdowns began, those early, very, very frightening days. And my team and I have just been focused nose to the grindstone since then effectuating emergency ordinances, coming up with the uh, $100-plus to help renters stay housed, and all of the 
couple of dozen organizations that we work with and help subsidize that are feeding people and the various other city ordinances that are striving to just keep people hanging on during the pandemic and then uh, putting people in the best position possible for when the pandemic begins to ease. And we expect that will happen in early 2021 as far as the beginning of that. So to hear that perspective from my colleague just kind of landed on me. uh, And I haven't had, we really haven't come up for air, (laughs) so to speak, my team and I. Uh, And uh, it's been fine. We've been focused. We're going to stay that way. Uh, And we, of course, have the summer of reckoning uh, on the structural and societal and racial inequities that uh, there's an all new awareness as never before. And that falls on the heels of some of my work from uh, last fall in September when I did the summit on poverty. Uh, And then uh, just keeping businesses afloat. Um, We we have our hands full, but but the, the good in all of this is that we know what our focus is. And I think that that will hold us in, in I, I think, uh, a good place uh, going forward uh, for going into 2021. Yeah, and definitely have your work cut up for you. Um, in terms of, you know, right now we've just gone back to a, like a restricted, a little bit more restricted, not as bad as March, but, uh, you know, we have curfew and all of that. Do you think that it won't be necessary for things like this in the next like, three, four months to come? Because you mentioned something about early 2021. Uh, to me, it seems like right. we're in it for a long haul. I think that the easing of restrictions are going to happen slowly. But here's what we know. We know that shipments of vaccine are going to land in our medical centers and hospitals in mid-December, really in a few weeks. We know that first responders will be the first universe of people that receive the vaccine followed, these are, you know, in in kind of rough terms, followed by uh, people with underlying conditions and vulnerable populations, followed by essential workers, followed by the general population. And I know that beginning, that all begins in December, so I would, uh, I would, I would uh, submit that by early spring, we will be giving inoculations to the general population. Uh, just understanding what I have read so far and uh, learned from some of the research that I've done, uh, experts, medical experts believe that if we if we do this distribution the right way that we could reach that herd immunity by May. And that's the herd immunity based on vaccinations, not the herd immunity based on letting everyone get exposed to COVID. Right. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that we're very well uh, on our way in, in that sense. And that's my hope. So I think that out of that, we'll begin to see slow recoveries of the economy. And lastly, what I'll say about that is whatever the restrictions are temporarily over the next few months, it's going to be very important for people to mask up, practice the distancing, use hand sanitizer and wash your hands, and then isolate if you feel or learn that you've been exposed to someone who has COVID-19. That is on us as as a society. Uh, Because when we do that, 
of course, the economy will open up more quickly as well. Yeah, well said. Absolutely. We all have to do our share and take responsibility for ourselves. And, uh, you know, we keep saying it, but we still see people who are not wearing a mask. Yeah. The cycle keeps going. You, this past weekend, you were involved with uh, Small Business Saturday, um, promoting small businesses and helping businesses to stay afloat. Um, Can you tell me a little bit Mm -hmm. about that? Yes. Well, every year since I've been in office, I make it a point to be out in the district in a copious way, shopping, promoting small businesses that are in the 13th district. And I've done that every year. It's always been a mission of mine to support locally owned uh, neighborhood serving businesses. And this year I see it not just as a mission, but an imperative. If we as Angelinos uh, really used the power of our purse strings collectively as never before, we collectively could keep all of our high-valued small businesses afloat. We could do that. Th- that power rests within us. Right. So for all of the gift buying, um, so restaurants now can't even have food served outdoors, even though the city has put time and resources into the alfresco dining program. So for three weeks, the county says no outdoor dining fine, then let's order as never before for takeout. Uh, and so we're, we're doing things like that. And so on Saturday, I visited seven small businesses, some restaurants, some coffee houses, some retail outlets. I bought gift certificates. I encourage everyone to purchase gift certificates. You can do that online as well if you don't want to get out. That's understandable. Uh, or goods um, at your favorite stores. And lastly, eat uh, Pick up food at restaurants as much as you can or have it delivered. One of the ordinances that I passed was putting a restriction on the delivery apps. They can't yes. charge more than 15% for a delivery. Uh, they were, the restaurants were getting fleeced by these Wall Street-owned, uh, publicly traded companies that do deliveries. And, and that was outrageous. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with L.A. Council member Mitch O'Farrell. I read that about you. I read that, and I was so excited because just recently, maybe about a week ago, I, I had something delivered, and the options I had on the app, the smallest one was 15% of the total, which was coming out to be like 20-something dollars. <laughs> Wow, it's not even giving me an option to put in my own, um, you know, my own specific amount. So thank you for that. That's, you know, so important, like Grubhub and DoorDash and all of that. You know, it just, it doesn't go in the pocket of the working class. As you said, it's going into the pocket Mm -hmm. of the shareholders. Well, it does. And, and, And they are holding these businesses hostage, literally. I mean, so businesses went from a, you know, a, on, on average, 85, 90% in-house dining to, to um, you know, 5, 10%, uh, and all of it takeout and delivery. So some of these delivery companies began charging more. Uh, and so these businesses and restaurants were being held hostage, and even the ones that didn't sign up, uh, some of these delivery app companies would put their restaurant on their website, and if you tried to order from it, they would say not a participating business. So they would, they would real businesses in through, yeah, exactly through shady online advertising. So, so we have an ordinance in place and any restaurant 
who's still getting fleeced, that is against the law in Los Angeles. So you call us and let us know uh, because there are penalties and fines uh, against doing that. And this ordinance will stay in place until 100 days after the pandemic ends. So these restaurants have protections. I'm recommending to call the restaurant yourself and not pay uh, a delivery app any fee whatsoever so that 100% of the profit yeah. goes to pay the workers uh, to you know keep the restaurant functioning. Yeah. Uh, and and that, that way, if, if you do take out and you pick it up yourself, don't even go through the delivery app. Go through the restaurant's website or call them directly. That's what I would recommend. Yeah, I always um, first call the restaurant to make sure that, you know, if they're doing their own deliveries, I'm going to go that route. Because uh, just mm-hmm. aside from the fact that they're overcharging, it's just too complicated. It takes too long. Your food is cold through these apps like DoorDash and yes. and et cetera. So that's, that's a very important right. thing. I think a lot of people would appreciate that um, and do appreciate that. I want to um, switch. I'm sorry, did you have anything to add? I was just going to say, well, even the delivery drivers that uh, receive income from these delivery app companies, they weren't even being taken care of. They weren't necessarily being given the protective gear themselves. And so that's one of the uh, one of the uh, factors uh, of the ordinance is they have to be supplied with gloves, sanitizer, et cetera. And if the restaurants do use the delivery app drivers, the delivery app drivers have a right to uh, use their restaurants at these restaurants too. So that that part is a bit of a two way street. I want to protect all workers. <laughs> you know, a lot of folks have their car and they're they're making money on this. Uh, this sort of shared economy, which is fine, but these these companies, whether it's an Uber or Lyft driver or someone who drives for a delivery app, they need to be taken care of adequately as well. Yeah, it sounds like you really did a comprehensive job and looked at it from all the different angles and the needs of. Uh, well, thank you. Of the ground up, you know, the working class, the drivers. That's uh, admirable. Thank you for that. I do want to switch topics a little bit. Uh, I interviewed. Uh, George Gascon a few months ago before he was elected as our new district attorney. It's a new era. Mm -hmm. We have a new administration coming and uh, you have a new district attorney. I want to see if, um, you know, how do you feel about this change that's going to happen? Is that something that really affects you as a council member going forward? Definitely. Um, So I referred earlier to the summit on poverty that I held back in 2019, in September 2019. I've long wanted to focus on the structural causes of poverty. And one of those structural causes of poverty is marginalization. And that's where racism has played a role in society for hundreds of years. And uh, I assembled, uh, gosh, about 100 uh, people, experts in the field, uh, leaders in the nonprofit world, uh, and uh, social justice uh, organizations, uh, social workers, lived experience, people with lived experience. And we, we assembled uh, and we did breakout sessions for a full day back in September of 2019. Father Greg Boyle was our keynote speaker, and we got to work. We put together uh, these focus groups and panels, and then we generated a report that we adopted by council in January, and then of course the pandemic hit in March, and then George Floyd uh, happened uh, in late May, with many other instances of 
black people uh, dying at the hands of a police officer uh, in other you know other states. Uh, these high profile cases, of course, George Floyd in Minneapolis, uh, Breonna Taylor, uh, and so nonetheless, there is an entire universe of people, a population that have a different experience with public safety and police officers. And that, of course, was the message that people marched uh, and protested uh, about uh, back in early June through the summer. Uh, and that was, I think, an expression of uh, demands for change and outrage that we haven't seen since the 1960s. And I was a very small child in 1968. I remember that movement, that social movement, um, very, very well. And so yeah. um, I hearken back to, to that awakening uh, from the late 60s to the awakening that we had in the summer of 2020. So on the heels of that summit on poverty with some of the things that we found out and these demands for social change, uh, I uh, co-authored uh, many of the reform legislation measures that the city council put forward including unarmed response for calls for service, uh, a, a mobile uh, van unit with, with professionals, trained professionals uh, who deal with mental health uh, issues. Yeah. And so we're rolling out these pilot programs in the coming months that I'm either a co-author on or yeah. authored. And so we want to bring and pilot these types of changes. We know that when there is someone in distress because they might be having a mental health episode, or they might be having some sort of reaction because of addiction issues. Right. Uh, it seldom requires an armed response, but yet the system is set up, so that's who responds. It's right. often an LAPD officer. Now, what people need to understand is so often it's a police officer that will help find a home for someone or get them immediate assistance. What always we hear about are the bad outcomes. Sure. But the bottom line is we don't need someone uh, who's armed to respond to a lot of these uh, instances. So we're, we're uh, pioneering an unarmed response to those types of calls for service. Yeah. And I'm very proud of that work, and I look forward to seeing how that benefits. Conversely, uh, I'm working on either reform measures or some sort of division between uh, the, what the county health department response to in terms of people in need with mental health challenges or even just public health challenges as it relates to the homeless population. People experiencing homelessness just don't get the services they need from the county, but yet the city of LA is contractually obligated. We don't have our own public or mental health department. It's all in the county. And this population is being woefully underserved. So I'm taking a look at that as well. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with L.A. Council Member Mitch O'Farrell. You know, looking at uh, your record and all your initiatives that you're working on and then remembering uh, George Gascon's sort of platform and such, uh, it sort of <laughs> answers my own question. And you two seem to have very um, complementary initiatives because he, too, is about uh, really looking at and focusing on racism, institutionalized racism and anti-black uh, mm -hmm. racism and bias and reforming 
uh, law enforcement and uh, you know you're looking at your you know you have the on our model of uh, crisis response and uh, mm -hmm. you've been a champion for police reform so it's such a great match and it must be exciting that this this sort of well deserved an issue is being uh, really taken seriously now. Uh, unfortunately, it took the murder of George Floyd and many others for it to come to the front burner, but it's finally here. It's true. It's true, Vic. And, and I think part of the perspective, the reason I have that perspective, it's not just something, it's not like a cloak that I put on just because I am a public service professional or an elected official. I'm of Native American heritage as well. I know quite well the, the, the genocide of Native Americans, and I also know the consequences of that. Uh, you know, the Native American population uh, suffers from the highest incidences of, you name it, yeah. diabetes, uh, infant mortality, teen suicide, clinical depression, a COVID exposure, the list goes on and on and on. There is a direct causal relationship between the genocide of the Native American, which took place for 400 years, yeah. and slavery. There are direct correlations to entire classes of people that have been uh, discriminated against and marginalized for not just decades, but hundreds of years. Yeah. So when you bring that perspective and that context into the conversation, I think it helps shine a light on some of these issues. I mean, my grandfather, who was chief of my tribe, the Wyandots, entered into the service as a teenager after World War II. He's a veteran, and his, he has a brother who fought in World War II. I come from a family of veterans. Well, Native Americans, even the code talkers in Oklahoma and Arizona in World Wars I and II, in Arizona, they didn't have the right to vote. They were denied citizenship, and they fought in World War II. Wow. So, so talk about a disenfranchised population. And um, so I feel that I have an understanding of this, and uh, I'm very privileged where I've been able to, what I've been able to do with what I've been able to, uh, you know, uh, work toward without prejudice, but my grandfather, who presented and looked very Native American, and then my mother also, they lived through the consequences of genocide. And that has, an, there's a term epigenetics, it's in your DNA. Yeah. So we have a lot of work to do. We have a yeah. whole lot of work to do, and we can effectuate policy that addresses that. It's going to take a lot of hard work, but we have partners. And I think George Gascon, uh, will be a partner in that, uh, along with others. Yeah, and you are actually working on something. It's uh, you're working with the Native American community on environmental policy, which has a lot of um, yes. great programs too. It's incredible. So, so some recent years ago, the city ended its 30-year agreement with the Navajo Nation because they had a coal, they were uh, harvesting coal. And so we are off of coal, and we want, or, or we will soon be off of it entirely. Uh, but uh, and the goal is within really four years, 2025. And I looked into that, and the Navajos uh, had no other source of income based on their energy production. So we brought in uh, President uh, Nez of the Navajo Nation with a whole delegation into my office. We brought the Department of Water and Power, and we 
began discussions late last year of what it would look like if they transitioned into renewable energy, photovoltaic, in other words, solar power, wind power, uh, hydro power, whatever it is that could be renewable. And they had already started applying for grants to do just that. Well, we are accelerating that. Uh, I had a, a, a meeting last week with the Navajo Nation again, and I think we bonded from that tribal perspective. Uh, and, and so I've kept that relationship going. The Department of Water and Power is very optimistic that they can strike a deal that's good for Los Angeles ratepayers, that helps the Navajos transition into the power that we can then purchase because we already own all of the transition lines from uh, northwest Air- northeast Arizona, rather, and northwest Mexico, which is where the Navajo Reservation is. And uh, we, have, we have a deal in sight. So in the coming months, we feel that we're getting closer and closer. And here's the good thing. It helps the Navajo people because they have incredible poverty. When they shut the cold fire plant, which they should have, Of course, it had economic consequences. This will help the Navajos because it will bring hundreds of jobs back, maybe even thousands. It will also enable them to transition and sell to other municipalities, not just Los Angeles. And here's the the great part about Los Angeles. We have a 100% renewable goal. When this is up and running in its initial stages, the city of Los Angeles could receive between 6 and 10% of all of our energy needs from this renewable energy source. Wow. So it's a phenomenal opportunity and could be the example going forward. The timing is great. We have a new administration that believes in science that is reentering yes. into the Paris uh, Climate Accord. So that's another source of optimism that I hope Angelinos will share with me. Yeah. Yes, we, we all need all the good news that we can get wherever. <laughs> Thank you for that. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with L.A. Council Member Mitch O'Farrell. I know that as, as the council member of you know, your district is so wide and it's so diverse, and one of the s- smaller cities is Little Armenia, and as you know, yes. this, um, Armenians once again have just gone through this genocidal war and ethnic cleansing by Azerbaijan and Turkey. And, yes. uh, you know, city of Los Angeles recognized the independent, independent Republic of Artsakh in 2014. Uh, but I'm just wondering yes. if uh, people in your district are reaching out to you, thinking that there's something you can do. What's happening in District 13? We're doing so much in terms of uh, Armenian visibility. Uh, and, and elevating the profile of of the causes. And that's another genocide, of course, uh, the, the 1915 uh, genocide. Uh, and so that's something, in, in the 13th district, we have Little Armenia, uh, one of the largest populations of Armenians outside of Armenia, between the 13th district and, and other neighborhoods in the city of LA and then the city of Glendale. Right. We're a powerful force collectively, and when when this region speaks about Artsakh and the latest injustices and the terrible agreement that Russia brokered because the United States was just absent in the diplomacy uh, 
role that we've traditionally played. Uh, it's a tragic situation that I think Armenians are still grappling with. And uh, I, I think this conversation is far from over. We have so much more to do, yeah. and I recognize that. But we, uh, we're elevating the profile. You know, we did Armenian Genocide Square back in 2015, which is the intersection of Hollywood and Western. Yes. And then Thanks to coming you. in 2021 under construction is the Armenian Gateway, which is curated with an Armenian um, artist and sculptor. It's going to be incredibly beautiful, and we'll have a really big, meaningful celebration in the community right there in Little Armenia when that sculpture is completed. Uh, The Artanian Art Center are are our uh, contractors for doing this. They they brought Tufa Stone from Armenia for the project, and so um, I, I encourage all of our Armenian listeners to, to please get involved in that and make contact with my office. You can log on and get my, uh, receive my newsletters. We do a couple of a week, sometimes three a week, uh, cd13.com, uh, and get a sense of, of uh, the Armenian issues that we work on uh, all yeah. the time. Yeah, I've seen the sketches initially when it was announced, sketches of what the gateway is going to look like. It's beautiful. So yeah, Thank you. The artists are so talented. And we're actually putting it on Caltrans property because that's where the community wanted it. And so there was no template for that. It took the better part of two years uh, after several Caltrans officials came and went uh, to finally get the right of entry and to build this. And there's no, nothing else like it in the entire state of California. It's just not something they do. But wow. we twisted arms, cajoled, and we're relentless, and uh, we're helping make it happen. Well, you've been a great champion for the Armenian-American community, and we are grateful for that. Before, uh, Well, thank you, Vic. I, I'm grateful for this community. I, I don't want to let you go before giving you an um, opportunity to add anything, anything I've missed, I should have brought up, a um, shout-out, perhaps. Gosh, um, here, here's what I would say, you know, in this holiday season. I'm going to go back to let's focus on the fundamentals of keeping as many businesses open as we can uh, to keeping as many employees from the local neighborhoods employed in these businesses as we possibly can. If we collectively as Angelinos use the power of our purse strings and we shop locally online in stores, uh, take out at all of our favorite restaurants. And if we put all of our disposable income this holiday season to that end to help our local economy, it recirculates back in the local economy. And I think that that's an imperative for all of us because businesses are struggling. It's, you know, I don't need to say that anymore. Everyone knows that. And we have a golden opportunity. And I think Angelinos are rising to the challenge. And I would say, as never before, uh, please invest in your locally owned uh, retail stores and restaurants and even local online businesses by gift cards, because once we start coming out of the pandemic, that will put them on stronger footing well into the future. And uh, let's just be hopeful, uh, keep doing our diligence, keep working. I encourage anyone listening to work with, with my office and, uh, help support uh, our collective work and we'll support yours because we, we all need to pull this rope in the same direction. And, and that is 
making progress on all of these challenges that face us, but we're up to it. We're up to the challenge to meet this moment. And that's that's what I would tell your listeners. Well said. Um, thank you, Council Member O'Farrell. Totally appreciate your time and um, hope to speak with you soon. Absolutely. Vic, thank you so much. Thanks for all you do. And thanks for amplifying these issues to all the listeners on KPFK and, else, and you know beyond. Uh, it's, it's really important. Uh, and it's a new era we're entering into. And we can certainly make the most of it. And I think we will. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was Councilmember Mitch O'Farrell from the 13th District, which is basically from Hollywood all the way down to Echo Park, Los Feliz, and all the surrounding areas. Thank you, Councilmember, for being on The Blunt Post with Vic today. Much appreciated. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And, uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami. Uh, Both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jarami. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.